Hey L2 listeners, you can find audio from this series and other series alongside study guides and sermon notes at l2today.com. If you have any questions following this podcast, you can email feedback at l2today.com. Welcome to church this morning. We're in the middle of a series where we are examining the meaning of work. Uh, Today is actually part two of a series, mini-series within the series that we started last week um, on the paradox of happiness. Um, Throughout this series, what we're trying to do is answer the question, how, how do we explain why the vast majority of us continue, not only of us, but of people around the world, continue to engage in work that has none of the motivational characteristics in it that make us want to get out of bed and go to work, or even... More importantly, how do we explain the fact that we continue to allow the people that are closest to us, our friends, family, and loved ones, to engage that kind of work? It seems almost as if there should be some sort of an answer that isn't immediately appearing. Um, In this series on the meaning of work, we're actually trying to look at work from a Christian perspective. And in this particular subset of this series, We're looking today at this relatively new emergence within the field of psychology called called positive psychology. Um, Some of you are familiar with it. I was talking to my daughter-in-law yesterday who was remarkably familiar with all that we're going to be talking about today. Um, What I'm hoping to show you is not so much an endorsement of contemporary psychology, but to show you that what psychology is now finding is proving what Christians have known through the ages. Science and Christianity are not enemies of one another. And this contemporary research is beginning to show what most of you should already know, that Christianity as a system of truth has all the elements of human thriving built into it. And as science discovers this, it's more, I think, it should be more and more encouraging and more and more intriguing to those of us that are Christians Um, This new branch of psychology has emerged as the result of psychologists everywhere beginning to realize that for at least the last 60 years, psychology has been built on what they called a disease model. What that means is they were almost exclusively concerned with helping miserable people be less miserable. That's why many of you have an apprehension towards psychology. And most of you in this room have never been to a counselor because you never thought yourself to be that miserable. Now, as this new field emerges, it's beginning to recognize that there was two main problems with that orientation of psychology. Um, The first was that when it was effective, psychologists began to realize the best they could ever do is to get someone back to zero. In other words, they were at a negative position in their life, the amount of satisfaction, the amount of contentment that they knew, the amount of happiness that they knew, was at a negative in the best that they could do with the skills, the theory, the practices that they could offer was to get someone back to zero, and it could do nothing from there up. Um, The second thing that it noticed is for all of you that are normal, it had nothing to offer you. They miss you almost entirely. So unless you were broken, there was nothing that they could really do. They couldn't increase your well-being or your satisfaction with life. 
Now, to examine, to examine this today and compare the two, we're going to do two things. Number one, we're going to take a brief look like we did last week at the science of happiness, what they're beginning to discover. And then we're going to take a few samples from Christianity, as you heard in these verses, that actually demonstrate what I told you to be true, that Christianity has in it all the elements of human flourishing. Now, I want to make a distinction before we get started. Um, this new branch of psychology is not advocating Christianity. They're not necessarily Christians. I can't discern from the things that I've studied and read. I can't discern that. But what it's beginning to show is the consistency of what I have hoped for for 25 years as a Christian counselor. Um, I believe I have been able to help people that, that psychology has not been able to help, simply for the, for the reason that Christianity as a system of truth oftentimes offers hope for human uh, flourishing and human satisfaction. And so there's something in this that I think is remarkably intriguing when you begin to look at it. So let's look at this first part, the science of happiness and what is beginning to be discovered now. Now, this field of positive psychology was accredited, accredited to a professor, Martin Seligman, who was the former president of the American Psychological Society. He's the one that's been given credit. There's a number of professors and scientists working in the field. Now, when Seligman was asked to define the distinctives of positive psychology, this is what he said. He said, positive psychology should be just as concerned with human strength as it is with weakness. It should be just as concerned with building strength as with repairing damage. It should be interested in the best things in life. And it should be just as concerned with making the lives of normal people fulfilling and with the genius and with nurturing high talent. And so that's his kind of confession that it was all one-sided for too long. And so positive psychology is the attempt from the psych psychological community to say, okay, what is it that makes us thrive? What is it that takes high talent and builds it into its full potential? What is it that keeps people strong in the midst of even post-trauma? And that's kind of the nature of the whole endeavor of, of uh, positive psychology. Now, the earlier model that Seligman presented, um, he had three paths of happiness in it. This was around 2004, 2005. And there was three paths, the pleasant, the, the pleasant life, the engaged life, and the meaningful life. Around 2011, 2010, that model was modified to acknowledge five aspects of personal well-being, and it was re referred to by the acronym PERMA, positive, positive emotion, engagement, relationships, meaning, and accomplishment. For the sake of our consideration today, we're going we're to only look at the earlier model. And the reason is it's simpler to get your head around it than it is all five of the PERMA aspects, and it really has everything in it condensed. And so that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. Now, within that model, as I've said, they identified three different paths in which we experience happiness. And the first of them that I want you to consider is called the pleasant life. Now, this is the easiest of the paths of happiness that they've identified thus far because it simply meant that you were to pursue as much of the things that please you as you possibly can. Now, that doesn't mean we can pursue everything, does it? There's economic 
there are social, cultural limitations that would keep us and prevent us from pursuing and acquiring all those things that please us. But the pleasant life is just the acquisition of as much pleasure as you possibly can. It's not exactly what you would call hedonism in the sense that it's just an unabated pursuit of it, but it's the acquisition and the possession of as much pleasure as possible. And so these positive emotions that emerge from the pleasant life are really its focus, and therefore it's the easiest of the three happies, is what they call them, um, as it merely, it's merely a pursuit of immediate pleasure. Now, when you think about this deeply, you have to admit that this type of happiness can be briefly extended by learning things. In other words, learning skills such as savoring, learning how to engage a situation and savor it to its utmost, or learning how to be mindful when you're engaged in it, can actually extenuate those, those periods or circumstances of positive emotion. They can extenuate it briefly, but not very much. Seligman and all of his, all of his um, constituents, they said that at the most, we can extend it between 15 to 20% by learning some of these skills. But as a system, they've, they had to admit that the pleasant life really can't sus be sustained. And there's a number of reasons for that. Perhaps the greatest weakness within the pleasant life position is that it habituates. That's a technical term that simply means that as you engage something, it's already eroding. Now, Seligman uses this illustration. He says that it's like French vanilla ice cream. The first bite that you take is 100%. It's hitting your senses, and it's just bombarding your senses. But by the time you take the sixth bite, it's completely gone. And this is what a lot of researchers also call the hedonic treadmill, or it's, it's also referred to as hedonic adaptation. And what that basically says is that as humans, we click, quickly return to a relative state of happiness that we have, whether something negative happens to us or whether it's something positive that happens to us. And according to this theory, as a person makes more money, for example, the expectations and the desires rise in tandem with that increased income. And what that does, it results in no permanent gain of happiness. And so as our life changes, it's almost like a weight set point that you can lose some weight and you can gain some weight, but you're always going to kind of settle back pretty much where you were. And this is what makes the pleasant life virtually unsustainable. It isn't that satisfactory, satisfying. You continually pursue, but you have to pursue more. You continually partake, but the, that which you're partaking of is almost like a drug addict, and you're almost always chasing that first high. And so the habituation of it makes the positive life the weakest of the three forms of happiness that they've discovered. Now, the second life is a life of engagement, the engaged life. It's a life in your work, in your parenting, in your love, your leisure. It's a life in which time stops for you. This is a very interesting concept. It requires, to, to have the engaged life, it requires three things. Number one, you have to know the difference between pleasure and what they call flow. Flow is a eudaimion uh, idea. It's a concept taken from Greek philosophy. And basically, this is what Seligman says about this. 
Flow is distinct from pleasure in a very important way. Pleasure has raw feels. You know it's happening. It's thought and feeling kind of converging. But during flow, you really can't feel anything. You, you become one with the music and time stops. You have intense concentration, and this is indeed the characteristic of what we think as the engaged life. So what he's telling you is something that I can relate to when I preach. When I preach, it's like time stops. I have to have a timer up here to kind of keep track of things because there's an intense concentration where you're so engaged in it that sometimes it almost feels like an outer body type of experience. Sometimes it's almost as if I'm watching myself. And those of you that have experienced, which probably all of you have at some point or another in your life, it's literally like time stops. You're so engaged with the moment. Your concentration is so intense that it doesn't have any tentacles left over to, to, to engage other things. So that's what Seligman's saying is that the first necessity of the engaged life is for you to recognize the difference between when you're pleased and when you actually engage flow. The second thing is necessary for the engaged life is identifying your sig signature strengths. Now, this is going to sound familiar to those of you that belong and have been a part of L2 for very long because we are intensely committed to help you know you. Knowing yourself is a major part of the engaged life because you have to recognize where your signature strengths are as well as recognizing where you're weak because as long as you're playing to your weaknesses, you're never going to know flow. You're never going to engage very often. You're never going to have that kind of concentration. And the third thing that Seligman says that you have to have to have the engaged life, you have to be intentional about recrafting your life to use the most of your strength that you possibly can. In other words, you make decisions to move towards things that allow you to use those signature strengths as much as possible, as opposed to just continuing a life that is structured in such a way that it's not allowing you to use those strengths, which necessarily means that you're abiding in your weakness. And so three things that kind of set up the engaged life. Now, Seligman gives this example of, of, of one of his students in one of his classes that was a, she was working her way through college, and she, he said she was a bagger at Gennardi's, which was the uh, in Pennsylvania, it was just a, a local grocery chain, and she just absolutely hated the job. She took an assessment to find out where her signature strengths lied, and it showed her that she was remarkably uh, socially adept. She was very empathetic. She understood people. She got them very well. And so what she did is recraft her bagging position, though she hated it, to try to make it the best emotional encounter for the customers in the whole course of her day. Now, obviously, she couldn't do that with all of the customers, but what she found is that she became more absorbed in a job that she actually hated. Now, the way this pertains and speaks deeply to some of us is that we have to admit that our abhorrence or our resistance of a present position that we have may be due to the fact that we are not engaging those core strengths. I think that's a remarkable example because it shows a person who became conscious of signature strength, and then was able to engage the job completely differently. Now, what Seligman says, he said, this doesn't produce more smiliness. He said, this isn't going to make you look like Debbie Reynolds. This is going to cause you 
to just sense more engagement in the present position that you have. In other words, you can change things on the inside the changes the circumstances that you're engaging every single day already. Very interesting concept there. And so the second life is this life of engagement. The third life is the meaningful life. Now, this third path is really just having some deep awareness and sense of meaning and purpose. Uh, Seligman says that they've discovered that this is the most venerable or the highest form of happiness that you can know. It, it's this idea of meaning in this view consists of, it's very, it's very parallel to Eudamian, Udom, uh, I'm sorry, um, flow in the sense that it consists of you knowing your highest strengths, but it consists of you being very intentional and being included and serving something that's bigger than you. It's the most sustainable and the most rewarding kind of happiness that they've discovered. Now, if you flip that over to say, well, I don't believe in anything. I, I believe that the highest good is the service of my pleasure. You're never going to know this kind of meaning. Conversely, the person that comes to a point that says, I understand this, and it's bigger than I am. And she's able to progressively recraft her life in the use of those signature strengths into the service of something that's bigger than her. And again, this isn't distinctively Christianity within, within positive psychology, but what it's saying is that when people can do that is when they know the greatest amount quantitatively of happiness and the most sincere amount qualitatively, and it's the most sustainable. Now, the conclusions that they've come to in all of this research is this, that after 15 replication studies involving thousands of people, when they ask the question as to the function of the type of satisfaction that they're getting from these types of lives or types of paths that they're on, how much, the question, how much life satisfaction do you get? To what extent does the pursuit of pleasure, the pursuit of positive emotion, the pleasant life, the pursuit of engagement, time stopping for you, and the pursuit of meaning contribute to life satisfaction. Seligman so said what they were shocked is that the results came out exactly opposite to what they thought. Here are the results. Number one, they said pleasure. It turns out that the pursuit of pleasure has almost no contribution to your meaningfulness or to your satisfaction in life. None at all. The second conclusion that they came to is that meaning was number one, and number two was engagement. The third conclusion that they came to that shocked them is that pleasure matters only when it's accompanied by meaning and engagement. In other words, there was something that you derive that brings satisfaction into your life when you pursue fun, when you pursue pleasure, but only when you're engaged, only when you're living for something that's bigger than you. So that's the science of happiness, very quickly condensed. Now I want to take now in the second part just a few samples from Scripture that show you that Christianity has been placing Christians in this stream of thriving for thousands of years. They're perfectly consistent with these discoveries that are emerging from science. And so as you begin to look at it, you compare this first, the pleasant life, 
And so as scientists are now determining that the pursuit of pleasure and positive emotion without engagement, without meaning, makes virtually no lasting difference in your sense of purpose or satisfaction and well-being. The Bible's been saying this for thousands of years, for millennia. These verses taken from 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 to 17, they explain that there is little lasting and true meaning from the pursuit of the world, for the sake of the world. Now, there's a tension in this that I think naturally should naturally emerge in the minds of Christians, because when you read the Scripture, it's saying that the trajectory of the gospel is that God is actually making all things new. He's not simply going to incinerate this world, but he's redeeming it. He's taking what's fallen and making it whole again. But there's a sense in which the message of the gospel is that you are to understand how to engage the world in order to use it in a lasting way. And so there's a really interesting kind of convergence, even in these verses that you get here, that, that we see in, in, in Luke chapter 12, in verse 13 to 21, in 1 Corinthians 3, where it says that you are to use, to engage the world, to use the things that are temporal in a way that they become lasting. And so there's an intelligence of a redemption that we're engaging in that avoids this misuse of the pleasant life the abandonment or the sacrifice of any pleasure that would come from that. And so the first is the pleasant life. The second is the engaged life. Now, as Seligman's and his team's research indicated, we tend to derive a huge or high degrees of satisfaction from recrafting our life towards our signature strengths. In other words, we derive satisfaction from knowing who we are. You're not going to find it by just kind of spinning, you know, a roulette wheel and coming up with a certain thing that you're going to try next. But knowing who you are and recrafting your life, orienting it towards that, produces an amazing amount of engage, engagement and absorption. There's a sense in which you're focused in an intensity of your life's purpose that is captivating to us as human beings. Now, these verses taken from Romans 12 I think are remarkably interesting. There's a number of places that I could have taken samples of this, but these words that Paul wrote in, in Romans chapter 12 and verse 3 to 6, they, they show us a very significant doctrine of Christianity because it shows us that there's a sense in which we all have a very deliberate sense of strength. We're not the same. And so for us to just indiscriminately say, well, what do I want to do? I just read several articles this week on, on some of the dangers of following your passions. Maybe you want things that aren't consistent with your strengths. That was the, the whole point in the articles, is that it's possible for you to desire to even long for things that aren't in this stream of where your strengths lie. And so what Paul is really saying here is kind of, there's a lot he says in these verses, but the first thing that we see is that you need to be very sober-minded. You need to use sober judgment in assessing what those gifts are, or you're going to see yourself very different than you are. He says, I don't want you to think more highly of yourselves than you ought. What is that? that that's a person who perceives herself and the, the set of gifts or the adornments of her life in a way that isn't appropriate to everyone else. It's too high. It's too high. 
The second thing that we see in these verses is that we must recognize that just like a body, we each have different gifts and talents that are all necessary for us to live interdependently, not independently, but interdependently and holistically. And so what that says is that we all live in families. We all live in communities. We live in even in the cultures of our workplace. There's parts and roles that we can play, but it's not every part. It's not every role. And it's necessary for us to be able to say, this is who I am. I will derive the greatest satisfaction from knowing who I am and what I can do. I will see the greatest difference. I will be able to move the ball forward the greatest amount when I use my strengths. And so there's a lot here. And the third part that we see in these verses is that you have to be intentional. He says, let us use them. These gifts don't automatically deploy. Some of us, I think, could say this. In my counseling, I, in coaching particularly over the last few years, I've seen many people that are frustrated because they've done things oftentimes for decades and felt almost, almost as if they're missed it. There's no deep sense of significance and purpose that's emerged from something in which they're engaging at least a third of their life. Tragic position. So there's the engaged life, and then lastly, the meaningful life. Now, obviously, you should have anticipated thus far that this would be the one that Christians should best understand. For the meaningful life yields the greatest and the most sustainable form of happiness. In essence, the meaningful life is a hybrid of the engaged life because it's you knowing your strengths and recrafting them into the service of something that transcends you. There's something that you're going to drive out of it that you don't have to hold on to. Now, before I go into this and we look at these verses, I, I, I want to ask you a question about the last time you tried to help someone. Just this last week, I had someone tell me a story that he was driving in the mountains and there was two, there was two young women on the side of the road trying to flag people down. And he was in the midst of a long, oftentimes as you get in the mountains, he was right in the middle of a long line of traffic. There was a lot of cars in front of him, and there were a whole bunch of cars behind him. And he said, typically in a circumstance like that, I would not have pulled off the side of the road. But he said, something just overcame me. He said, there were two young women, that obviously, they didn't, they didn't know what to do. And he said, so I, I decided I was going to help. He just pulled out of the line and pulled off to the side of the road. Well, as he began to talk to them, he discovered right away that they had run out of gas. And he said, I knew that it was at least seven miles to the gas station. And he said, then I start calculating in my mind, okay, if I take them, I'm not just going to be able to drop them off at the gas station. So I'm going to have to go, we're going to have to get gas, and then we're going to have to turn around and come back another seven miles. And so the what was essentially going on? I said, what was going on in your mind? He said the cost of helping them kept going up, up, and up. It was like reading a line item on a bill. And he said, before very long, I, I was lamenting the fact that I had pulled over. Now, as Christians, we believe that God is in control of every single thing, right? He's not in control of just a few things. And we're not deists that believe that God just has this benevolent intention and he never gets involved in the world. We don't believe that at all. We believe that the lot is cast into the lap and his every decision comes from the hand of the Lord. We believe that, that God is working all things according to the purpose of his will. So what was really happening? 
See, this is what I believe it was. If engagement in meaningfulness is something that causes us to experience happiness, the difficulty of assisting those two women was higher. The cost was much higher than he expected, which yielded a greater degree of happiness for him. Do you get that? When God puts you up against things that are not easily rectified, when he sets you in circumstances that you can't just conveniently dismiss, you don't have an abundance of money to pay someone's rent, you don't have an extra job to give to someone, and all of a sudden now it becomes more and more complicated and you begin to question, why did I engage this? He's actually positioned your life to experience a greater degree of happiness than you would if it had been easy. That's what they're finding. And so those of you, there's some of you in medicine here that you know that you've given the majority of your life training, the majority of your life preparing to do things that none of the rest of us in this room can do. But there's a sense of satisfaction and purpose that you derive from that that none of us can know. And there's a sense in which Christians can embrace even the brokenness of this world and have meaning and satisfaction and happiness. That's an amazing discovery. Now, in these verses taken from Matthew 5, most of you know them, in verses 13 to 16, these verses have been called the similitudes. The verses immediately preceding that were called the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes explained the Christian life on the inside. The similitudes were that. That's not what Jesus was trying to do. What he's trying to explain in these verses is your life in relation to the world. This is what it's like. This is the simile that you could create. And he says two things. You're like salt and you're like light. Now, the use of salt in those days, they hadn't developed any kind of refrigeration. And salt was not used the same way that it is used today. It was used to press into meat to prevent it from rotting. And it didn't prevent it inevitably for rot, but it, it preserved it longer than, it, than in, if it hadn't been applied. And so basically he's saying, what your life will be like in relation to everybody that knows you is that they know their life has a goodness in it that wouldn't be there if it were not for you. When he switches the simile to, to light, he's basically saying, your life, from your life, which can't be hidden, it's going to emanate a certain understanding. There's going to be an illumination that comes into the world of, the, of, of those around you that is going to push back the confusion. It's going to push back the darkness. In other words, there is going to be a benefit that emanates into this world because of you, and we won't be able to stop it. A light, a city on a hill, can't, it can't be hidden. No one lights a lamp and hides it. In other words, you have been brought into salvation to create a change in this world, a difference that can't be, can't be hidden at all. Another way to say it would be the purposes for which God has done what he's done in you can't be stopped. They're unavoidable. They're undeterrable. They can't be derailed. You look at Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10 that we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works that He prepared beforehand for us to walk in. You are a chip that fits on the motherboard of history. And you do a job in redemptive history that no one can do but you. This is what 
when I always tell you, and I know I say a lot of things that are confusing, and I apologize that they don't make sense at the beginning, and I'm trying to be as patient as I can for you to catch up. <laughs> but this is what I mean when I say you have to fight for you. No one can fight for you but you. Because the doubt that I know is the doubt that comes over me when I'm all alone. And I don't have some expert that I can go to to say, what do you do with this thought? This insecurity that comes over you that makes me afraid to come up. What, what do you do with it? How do you take it captive? Those are the places that I have to fight for me. But those are the places that you have to fight for you. See, there's a sense in which Christianity is to create a boldness where the writer of Proverbs could say, the, righteous, the, the wicked flee though no one's pursuing them, but the righteous become as bold as a lion. That's from the internal fight that comes from you saying no to your insecurities. For you to say, yes, this is what I, I, I really do believe to be true and holding tight as if everything depended on it. So when Jesus describes this, it is magnificent because it is something that's bigger than you. It's the whole creation that he's speaking of. You're the light of the world and the salt of the earth. So when we step back from this, I think we have to admit that the Christian life comprehends all three paths, doesn't it? Those of you that have come to know engagement and meaning have lives that are so filled with pleasure that it shows all over you. And I know it isn't, well, just wait for the other shoe to drop. Wait till he finds out that Audi's not going to really make him happy. Wait till he finds out that living downtown isn't all that it's cracked up to be or moving to the suburbs isn't all that you think it's going to be either. It's not like sooner or later it's just like veneer. He's going to rub it and sand it through and then there's just going to be ugly particle board and he's going to have to go on to something else. There's something that you know about pleasure and it's pleasing to you because you have engagement and meaning. Because Christianity tells you all three, not just one. And you, you can read the stories about Hollywood. You can read the stories about so many that are so mesmerized with the possessions in the world that only last their fleeting treasure. And you know it. In the core of your being, you know it when you read a, a magazine and you see a movie or you hear some news story about some spectacular wedding. And there's just a sense of distrust that comes up in you, not because you're just jaded and cynical, but because Christianity has taught you how to view the world entirely differently. See, Christianity comprehends all three paths, and it enables you to engage it, the world with purpose and meaning and enjoyment. It's pretty remarkable to me. Science is not our enemy. It never has been. We kind of swallowed that Kool-Aid in the 20th century. And it's time that we begin to believe that the more we find out, the closer to our faith it will show itself to be. Pretty remarkable, I think, indeed. All right, let me take a couple questions and I'll be done. As we fully engage in our lives, where is the line that keeps us from striving or the idolatry of happiness. I believe that's a very good question. Any of you that have matured to the point that you've started to experience pleasure 
again. That's a cycle, isn't it? See, before we're converted, we can't help but be captivated by the meaning of the world, by what we perceive to be its meaning. But as we begin to grasp it, we, we, we experience things in our own culture. that We see it all the time. What is a midlife crisis to you? Somebody. What do you mean when you say, well, he's just having a midlife crisis? What does that mean? Anyone? What's that? Okay, that, that, that's a big part of it, but typically what has happened in my engagement with that process is that you have someone that put his ladder against a wall, and for several decades he was climbing the wall, and he finally got to the top of the wall, and it showed itself to be futility. And what he does is discard that. Oftentimes he'll discard his family, his wife, his job, and he'll buy a little sports, red sports car and a gold chain and comb his hair forward, and it looks like an idiot because you know he's... He's just on another rabbit chase. He hasn't learned a single thing. He's just recycled the whole process. That's what it is. But as Christians, you go through a process where you see that the world can't satisfy you, and its meaning takes you deeper. It doesn't let you go. It shows you that you have a purpose with people. You have a family now that is remarkable. The responsibility that God says that you have as a husband or as a wife, as a mother, as a father, as a friend, as a co-worker, it engages you, it pushes you into your life. It doesn't take you out of your life. This is the primary thing that's wrong with the presentation of the gospel today. The gospel is not an escape route. It's an engagement strategy. And so as you find that, you begin to discover, I can really make a difference and all of a sudden, things start to become fun again. How does that happen? It's because we're not trying to find the fun. It's that we're actually engaging our humanity in a way that the fun discovers us. And then we can possess it without it possessing us. But now as you, this is the maturity I was talking about, now as you do that, you always have kind of a tug. Because you know, I could love this too much. And I know God will not share me with anything else. And there's a sense in which you hold it in tension, and it's very real. And so this question is very legit, because it forces you to admit, I could lose all the pleasure I know by seeking it for pleasure's sake. Like a bird, it will fly away. And we learn how to hold it in a very, very intelligent manner. Very, very good question. It seems most churches focus on the pleasant life to appease the masses in a world where even our spiritual leaders promote basic happiness. How can we find our strengths to glorify God? Wow, these are, I, I, these are good questions. Um, I was going to make a joke, but I'll just leave it with that. Um, this is a good point. I believe that when the gospel is used as a way to promote possession, like the health and wealth, prosperity gospel. Interviews with people like Robert Tilton, he'll say, I have to possess 10 Rolls Royces because if I don't, you won't believe that this is what God does for those that serve him. Now, immediately what that does is put you back on the track of possessing Rolls Royces or whatever car you want, right? It puts you back thinking, okay, God is a vending machine. 
If I do this, then he owes me that. And oftentimes in such an appeal, there's all, all, it's oftentimes attached to it to say, okay, now you need to send in your $1,000 gift. Because God needs to witness you acting by faith and not by sight. Deny your own sense so that you can have everything that you wanted. And it's just, it's just a reversed psychology of getting all that you ever wanted. And to me, there's a repulsion in it because I don't think that that's the gospel. It's using Jesus in the gospel to promote another worldview. And it leaves us bankrupt and unsatisfied. And so it's difficult. For those of you that know me, I've got a low-grade fever I have difficulty with the church today, many churches, maybe most churches, I don't even know. And thank God there are many churches that are very good, but there are many that just teach us how to pursue what we always wanted a different way, using Jesus as the key. Like he's the genie in the lamp that if we rub it just the right way, like the prayer of Jabez, same thing a few years ago. Learn how to pray so that God will come out and say, your three wishes are my command. That's not the gospel I know. That's not a narrow gate. It leads to a narrow way. That's a broad gate in a broad way that leads to destruction. So, good question. Last one. Two. That was good. That's good. I hope this is helpful to you. I am so encouraged where we're going. I am so hopeful that what you know deeply can speak to these issues in the days to come. Those of you that are at work, start thinking of how to recraft the job you have to best use your signature strengths, to see if it doesn't produce in you more engagement, more absorption, and more meaning. I promise you it can. All right, let's pray. Father, I would ask that these would be moments in which you, you provide us a, just a sense of lucidness that would ask, enable us to kind of survey our life, to examine ourselves for a few moments, to see perhaps where we really have kind of succumbed to a view of the world that says, I can find it. I can find the perfect job. I can find the perfect manager. I can create the perfect business. Instead of being able to say, help me to change me so that those things external to me don't affect me the way that they are, have been. Help me to understand myself better to where my engagement is with purpose, intentionality, and intelligence and meaning. Lord, free us from a culture that bombards us incessantly with the promise of pleasure, whether it's sex or power or influence. It has all of those things that they're allurements to us even now. But we ask that you would enable us to be what Jesus in the very first century said we would be if we followed him, the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Help us as we would strive to be those kind of people. Help us to repent from false loves and idolatry. Help us to believe that you really do allow your people to live life to its fullest with engagement, meaning, and even pleasure. Help us in these things, we pray. We commit ourselves to you now in Jesus' good name. Amen. You can find audio of the series and other series alongside study questions and sermon notes at l2today.com. If you have any questions, send an email to feedback at l2today.com. 